From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Schachman. On today's show, we're talking about juvenile justice. It's always been a serious issue, but it's back in the spotlight now, after a recent shooting at a school in the greater downtown Wilmington area. And just a note here, the following segment contains audio that may be disturbing for some listeners. On Monday, August 30th, shortly after 11 a.m., a massive fight broke out in a crowded hallway at New Hanover High School. The incident was captured on several smartphone videos, but those videos don't add much clarity. What you can see is total chaos. Students fighting, students running, someone calls out to break up the fight. And then... We may never know exactly what happened here. We do know one student was shot, reportedly causing serious injuries to his hand, requiring reconstructive surgery, and to his legs as well, which will require weeks of intensive physical therapy. Another student, a 15-year-old, was arrested. It's not yet known if he'll be tried as an adult, but it's safe to say there are very serious consequences on the table. It talks about bringing weapons onto school grounds as well as discharging weapons on school grounds. Um, This young man has been charged with both of those offenses. Also, something we call the alphabet assault, assault with a deadly weapon intent to kill inflicting serious injury, has been charged in this case. And finally, attempted first-degree murder, uh, which is a violation of 14-7. A trial is a long way off, and because it's an active investigation, law enforcement and prosecutors can't say much about it. But we can say that a felony conviction would probably mean prison and a lifetime of background checks that could prevent him from getting jobs, housing, and deny him countless other opportunities. There will be, no doubt, plenty of debate over the outcome of this case, but this young man is not alone. Every year, New Hanover County sees hundreds of juvenile cases, but only a few dozen end up in juvenile detention and just a handful end up in adult court. For those facing less serious charges, the court has an opportunity to intervene and to respond to the underlying issues that drive crime, mental health, poverty, and childhood trauma. But for those facing serious felony charges, the courts have a balance to maintain. On the one hand, they have to respect the seriousness of these crimes and the victims to whom they do harm. And on the other hand, they have to acknowledge that once in the criminal justice system, many will never find their way out. On today's show, we'll be talking with District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening to get their perspective on recent changes to the laws around juvenile prosecution, alternatives to the court system, and what might be possible now that New Hanover County has decided to tap into $350 million in hospital sale funds. That money will go to addressing violence in schools and communities, an issue that is bound up with all of the root causes of crime and the reasons that children and young adults end up in front of a prosecutor and a judge. My guests today are District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening. Ben, Jay, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to start by asking you guys about your separate experiences with the juvenile justice system and sort of where you're coming at this overall issue from. So Ben, if we can, let's start with you. 
Well, I'd like to start with a shared experience that we have, although different generations, and that is um, at Wake Forest Law School, where we both attended. They used to say in our juvenile justice class that there's no such thing as a problem kid, only a kid with problems. And the whole focus behind juvenile justice should be about rehabilitation and teachable moments and not permanent records. Uh, To the extent possible, that is absolutely the goal that we share together here in the 6th Prosecutorial District, the 5th Judicial District. Yeah, so, Ben, um, I'm blessed to say I did not have a personal experience with juvenile justice growing up. (laughs) That's good. Um, Could have. Could have. Um, And I try to be mindful of that uh, when I uh, work with kids. But I've been working in juvenile court since 1979. Um, I started uh, when I was in private practice. I represented kids who were were in court Um, and then um, have spent a lot of my time – as a judge in juvenile court and full-time since 2014. And I'll only end this part of it by saying that in April of 1999, we had Columbine. I actually started the day after Columbine. And within my first 10 days of work, we had a copycat case, a, 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 a threat at Hoggard High School that came in. And I remember as a young prosecutor standing before Judge Jay Corpening with those first appearances. And I was looking at a young man and a young woman, uh, both under the age of 18, who were in orange jumpsuits, in shackles, and it absolutely occurred to me at that moment that they had no idea when they made those threats that there would be adult consequences. And that set me off on a journey that inspired me to help start teen court in this area, a best practice I had seen in Winston-Salem when I had practiced law there. Um, And through the years, of course, Judge Corpion and I have worked together a lot uh, to try to see what we can do about uh, making sure that young people encounter court the right way and really only use the power of adult court for children when absolutely necessary. Okay, there's a lot to unpack with this issue, but I want to start by going back to 2012 to another tragic school shooting, Sandy Hook. Ben, you were telling me before the show that this was sort of the origin of what's called the Safe Schools Task Force. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, Newtown had just happened, and I convened a summit on school safety where we brought together justice officials with law enforcement, with school officials. And we were talking about information sharing. We brought all of these professionals together into one space and said, we're not going to wait for a tragedy to visit our community. We need to be proactive right now and see what's out there and what we can do to harden the schools, meaning, you know, make them harder to get into. But more importantly, look at what's under the roof of our schools, and particularly the kids who are usually suffering with some type of mental health issue. It's almost always bullying. It's almost always exploding when they don't feel like they have a resource. And it's almost always people immediately knowing exactly who did it even before the details emerge. And so from, the, from that um, summit, uh, I turned to my good friend and someone who I admire, and that's Judge Corpening, and said, would you be willing to chair a task force coming out of this um, to really keep this great idea alive and turn it into action? And that's the Safer Schools Task Force, which still meets quarterly um, to this day. You had mentioned when we spoke about this before that there were some recommendations out of the task force that you've seen implemented and some that are sort of still on the table. Can you break that down for us a little bit? Sure, I'll be glad to talk about that. Um, you know, we made uh, sweeping recommendations over several different categories, you know, in terms of physical plant, in terms of, of uh, law enforcement, in terms of um, a category I'll call relationships. 
we really focused on the relationship piece. Um, we could spend all the money we wanted to spend on cameras, on locks, on hardened structures, on metal detectors, spend all that, put more cops in schools, spend all that money you want. Schools aren't safe until you take care of what's inside the walls. Some of the most significant recommendations we made were about staffing for student support services positions. What we're seeing play out in our community is a public health issue, and we need folks who are trained to work with kids to make things better for kids. And that's where we've seen some of the great progress uh, by our school system and by our county. Didn't have a lot of traction at first uh, from our first report in 2013, but after uh, Parkland uh, in 2018, we were asked to reconvene. We weren't meeting regularly then. We were asked to reconvene and update our recommendations. And when we did, county acted, and they added student support services positions, specifically mental health uh, providers in our schools. Um, I think that year they added eight positions, which is, you know, in a budget year is a pretty significant um, response. Uh, and they've continued to look at staffing in all of those student support services uh, positions, whether it's mental health providers, school counselors, uh, to make sure that, that there are trained folks in those positions to recognize kids in need and to respond. And so that's an area where we've seen the most progress. We made other recommendations, you know, making the SRO, the school resource officer position, a position that had career advancement opportunities so that, that when we had good school resource officers in the building that were developing relationships with students, that there was incentive for them to stay in that career path, right? And so that there would be advancement opportunities to corporal or sergeant or lieutenant. We've seen some consistency with that, but we haven't really seen that career path. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. We're talking today with District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening about juvenile justice. So I wonder if you can do this for us. Talk about what's an ideal situation with these additional wraparound services versus without them and, you know, how that sort of is the garden of forking paths. Just as an example, the number one risk and need of children coming into juvenile justice is psychological services. We, we, we have an evidence-based tool we use to assess that. That's in our schools, too. We see kids who have all kinds of stress in their life as a result of adverse childhood experiences that they've had or adverse community experiences that they've had. And Ben is co-chair in a task force working on that in our court system now. But, but we see those children having those, those issues in their lives, and it's important to recognize the warning signs of those issues and make sure we're connecting helpful services to those children to respond to the need that they have actually then to empower them to be able to learn. For example, a child who's experienced um, repeated trauma in their life is going to come to school and not be in a position to learn. Their brain won't let them. Meeting that child's needs, recognizing those, those warning signs um, are so, so important. Uh, we were on the way to training every staff member in every school in youth mental health first aid training pre-COVID. COVID sidelined that, but that's coming. It's going to happen. Are we there? Is there more we could do in this sort of field? So there's a, there's a lot that's actually happening that, that doesn't get talked about a lot. For example, 10 of our schools have piloted trauma-informed practices. As we shift the conversation from what did you do to what happened to you, to look for root causes of behavior and then identify the needs of the child instead of just reacting or responding as, as we in adult world so often do without asking appropriate questions. That's about being equipped with a trauma lens, and 
Ben's task force is working on bringing that trauma lens to the court system across the across the state. But that's work that our schools are going to continue to do. Yeah. And would you like to say something about the state level efforts you're working on? I would. On? You know, there's a paradigm shift going on right now, and the judge just mentioned it. It's instead of labeling individuals, we label conduct. You know, instead of saying she's a prostitute, maybe she's being prostituted. Instead of he's a drug addict, he's a young man struggling with addiction. Here's the examples of what we're talking about. You can ask a child 10 questions. Are your parents divorced? Is one of them incarcerated? Are there drugs going on under the roof of your home? How about domestic violence? Have you been getting physically or sexually assaulted? Um, is there mental illness going on under the roof of your home? The 10 questions you can ask give a child an ACE score. If they answer one of those questions, yes, that's a one on an ACE score, adverse childhood experience, adverse community environment. A child with four or more of those questions answered yes has some challenging circumstances in front of them. 70% more likely to be a victim or a defendant in a violent crime one day. 62% of our IV drug users answer four or more of those questions, yes. And so the number one gateway drug, for instance, to heroin that we see in the streets of Wilmington, it's not marijuana, it's childhood trauma. And so there's a 20-year less life expectancy for someone who answers six or more of those questions, yes. And so if we know that, we can give these children the scaffolding of support they need while they're still infants in abuse, neglect, and dependency cases. We can help them when they're in our juvenile caseloads. We can reach out to them when they're incest survivors in the terrible felonies that my office handles and recognize that victims have rights just as defendants and they need resources just as we've been giving them to defendants for years. That's what we're trying to do on a much larger scale statewide with this resiliency task force. And some of these scaffolding measures, what would those look like? Well, we were just at the Harrelson Center as one small example, and I call it the five arms of the starfish, the five arms of outreach that you can lovingly put your hands around a child with. And it includes these five arms of outreach are the government, certainly those of us in the court system working in a nonpartisan way with all other branches of government, the faith-based community, and the Harrelson Center is a perfect example of the Help Hub and what they're doing the schools, and of course, the school justice partnership, and, and what I think Judge Corpenick could talk about there is doing wonders. Two out of three people in our jails and prisons are high school dropouts, so keeping them in school is everything. And then, of course, business, um, and there's a lot we can do. Step up Wilmington, for instance. You know, nothing stops a bullet quicker than a job, and, and the street's always been an equal opportunity employer, so getting people that pursuit of happiness, that that idea that you can get off a street corner and into a career really makes a community safer. And finally, the nonprofits and all of them working together synergistically, for instance, at the Harrelson Center, that's what I'm hoping, particularly the hospital and all of the good uh, resources we have from them are going to help us with as we look at community violence and how that translates into school violence. I think that, Ben, some of those supports also are things that have been happening in our community uh, in our nonprofit world for years, right? So folks like Frankie Roberts uh, and the LINK program, you know, he he tried to operate the Light Manhood program for a number of years and, and couldn't get funding. And that was for teenage boys in his community. And the answer was, no, there's not funding. Well, that's an underserved, unrecognized population, and that, that's got to be supported. There are other organizations that work directly with kids in our low-income areas, that face so many challenges and risks that, that my children never had to face, that Ben's children never had to face. And they have been, I don't know that I can say ignored, but certainly not recognized in terms of the importance they have. 
you know, Frankie's Farm is one of the few things in our region that my conservative friends and liberal friends both agree he should get more money. Right. And, you know, and his, his program works so well. And he's got data to prove it. Um, and he struggles. All right. Well, I want to put a pin in a couple of those issues because uh, we have to take a break. But when we come back, we'll be talking more with District Court Judge Jay Corpening and District Attorney Ben David about juvenile prosecution and changes to the law that have happened recently. We'll also be talking about some of the new possibilities that are on the table as the county has agreed to tap into $350 million of hospital sale proceeds. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Schachman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. With us today are District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening, here to talk about juvenile justice. Later in the show, we're going to talk about what new options might be on the table now that the county is tapping into some of that hospital sale funding. But first, I want to unpack some of the changes to the law that happened with the Raise the Age Act. This was a few years ago, but I know the reverberations are still being felt throughout the court system. Ben, can you help us unpack some of this? Sure. We're the last of the 50 states to raise the age from 16 to 18 years old. Um, There were two officials from the court system for the entire state that were asked to speak before the legislature in support of that measure. And Judge Corpening and I were those two officials. And I, I think the judge and I would both say those were three of the most important minutes in our whole careers. And we were on the right side of history with that. And unapologetically, I say to anybody, that was the right thing to do. And with the benefit of time, it remains the right thing to do. Um, We also have to recognize the concern that people had at that time that we addressed. If you go back to our public comments, people were saying, what about kids who carry the guns for the older kids in the gang? They're called holsters on the street. What about the kids who put their hand up in the air at the traffic stop and say, those are my drugs when they're not, because they're going to face a different type of punishment? What about the kids who joined forces to commit a crime, and we're treating them differently because of an arbitrary number. And what we said then, and what I say again, is that the reason that we were advocating raising the juvenile age is the vast majority of cases in the criminal justice system were nonviolent misdemeanors and felonies that once they were on a child's record had collateral consequences that were going to create a permanent underclass in this country. They couldn't go to college with even one felony. 40% hit to their future earning potential after one nonviolent felony. Can't go to the military. Can't live in public housing with your own family. The tragedies go on and on. If there are violent offenses that are occurring, then we are still going to try them as adults. And we actually used some examples of cases that had occurred in this district for ones that I was saying, if you look at seriousness of the fence or terrible record even amassed by the age of 15, we're still going to be looking at transferring those cases. And the prosecutors got behind this provision 
when we were guaranteed that we would still have the ability to efficiently transfer cases where appropriate, and there would be a mechanism in the laws to do that, and we can talk about that, and that it would be adequately funded, because we knew that if we suddenly dumped a bunch of 16- and 17-year-olds into a system that wasn't funded, that would be a further tragedy. And so this was a great moment for our state, and I'm pleased to say two years in, I believe it's working, and there's no question it's the right thing by our kids. A couple of fixes that have happened to part of that transfer piece because the the data was overwhelming that that most kids coming to court as adults, 16 and 17 year olds, were charged with minor offenses, and we know that even an arrest on an adult record is a tag that can impair their future. Right? Folks were concerned. We recognize those concerns. Compromise happened. One of the first little tweaks that happened was that there was broad agreement that if the prosecutor and the defense lawyer agreed that the case should go back to juvenile court, then the judge would have to send it back even after even after transfer. Well, now, legislative fix effective uh, December 1 as part of uh, Senate Bill 207 is that the prosecutor in juvenile court now has the discretion not to ask for transfer of E through G in appropriate cases and, and keep that child in juvenile court. Those are the felony classes. Felony classes, yeah. sorry. Classes A through G for felonies and then different classes for misdemeanors. But A through G are the most serious of the felonies. H and I are the most uh, low level. A through G are the ones that encompass any violent crime. And so now, now we've seen the lived experience after including the mandatory transfer is that we don't necessarily need that for all the cases. And so now prosecutors have the discretion not to transfer some of those kids because there are services that we have even if it requires commitment to a youth development center, that is dramatically different than a prison, dramatically different, and means education can still happen. It means that rehabilitation can really happen because I've heard Ben say many times that recidivism rate coming out of Department of Adult Corrections is about 66%, 67%. That's pretty hard. If it's violent, if it's life-threatening, then Ben's office is asking for transfer and under the mandatory transfer you know, we're seeing that happen. We can talk more about that data. I've got some with me today. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to sort of dig a little deeper into this because I know it's kind of nebulous for people. Uh, so how often does a transfer happen? And this is where someone is, you know, in juvie court and moved to adult court. Last fiscal year, there were five juveniles transferred to adult court. They were all mandatory transfer cases, A through G felonies. And when you say mandatory transfer, this is? So a mandatory transfer is if the juvenile is charged with an A through G felony, they start in juvenile court, and then either on a finding of probable cause or indictment, then the judge is required to transfer it to juvenile court, regardless of prior history, regardless of any other factors. Very different than the discretionary transfer provisions under our law, where there's a laundry list of factors that I have to look at to make findings about. And I, I don't want to interrupt, Jay, but just very quickly on this to unpack it. Again, the, there's 10 classes of felonies, I through A, and the B class has B1 and B2, so that's why there's 10 classes between A and I. A is first-degree murder. B1 is second-degree murder with malice. B2 is implied malice, like a Russian roulette case or a, a, a case involving you know, speeding on a highway involving drag racing. C, you get into terrible crimes involving more than $100,000 of theft. D is armed robbery all the way down to where you get to H's and I's. H's and I's aren't the ones that we transfer. Those involve drug possession, property offenses like breaking and entering into cars or even homes when they're not occupied. Um, those nonviolent felonies are ones that are not the mandatory transfers. It's, it's the drug sales on up that we're talking about. 
And even in those cases, the vast majority are not transferred. It's when you really get into that rare air of violent crimes involving usually firearms, armed robbery on on up, when when we have sought transfer, um, even for 15, 14-year-olds. The year before, only two juveniles transferred. For the three years before that, no juveniles were transferred. And to put that in perspective for the state in the last fiscal year, there were 334 kids transferred statewide. 323 of those were mandatory transfers. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. We're talking today with District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening about juvenile justice. Right now, we're talking about transfers. That's moving a young suspect from juvenile court to adult court. So, Ben, let me ask you, are there times when these cases fall into kind of a gray area? For me, it's usually very clear cut. You know, if you look at the factors that uh, the statute asks us to look at, again, we're a country of laws and we uphold the law. And there is guidance. Even, even when a case is mandatory, you know, I would encourage people to look at uh, the statute that specifically deals with the factors, the eight factors. Um, that are listed in North Carolina General Statute 7-2203. Age, maturity, intellectual functioning, that's obviously something that's unique to each individual. But then you look at prior record, uh, whether there was prior rehabilitation attempts, facilities and programs available to our courts, and the likelihood that this individual would benefit from those. Again, is this a case with a teachable moment? But then you get into the real, I think, meat of it whether this was a violent offense, whether it was premeditated, aggressive. You look at seriousness and whether protection of the public requires sending a message uh, that this person be prosecuted as an adult. When we're looking at our children, we of course focus on their rehabilitation, but that is not the only purpose for punishment. The other purposes for punishment are a specific deterrence, that is to take this one specific individual potentially off the streets for a while, but also general deterrence, the idea that you need to send a message and say, these are the consequences. Ben, you might know that I go and speak to every eighth grade and every senior class every year, and I've been doing that for the 17 years I've been the elected district attorney with the exception of last year because of COVID. And I specifically bring up examples to the young people about the stuff that I see that winds up in adult court. And this was when they were 16 as adults, and a lot of them were as as listening seniors, obviously. And now that they're 18, I say, I guess you can start by thanking me that most of you are still going to be treated like children. I said, but let me be clear. If there's anyone, regardless of their age, in this high school right now who thinks that they can, for instance, bring a weapon onto campus and then discharge it, I'm going to try it like an adult. And I say that to anyone listening because it's important that we have a standard, I believe, that sends a certain message that some things are just not going to be tolerated. That's the the meaning behind general deterrence in our laws. So now I want to talk about the more recent raising of the age. And this was the minimum age for prosecution, which was raised from six to eight. Uh, Originally, it was intended to be 10. Ben, first, can I ask just bluntly, are we really seeing six and seven-year-olds who need to be criminally charged? It's very rare. We have had cases in the time I've been district attorney involving, believe it or not, sexual assaults involving children as young as that age. Extremely rare. Um, I am in favor of raising the juvenile age, uh, the minimum age, from six to even 10 years old. I know the compromise has been eight. I'm going to defer to Judge Corpening because he has worked at the statewide level on this issue. And 
I'm, I'm hoping that that becomes a facet of the law very soon. So the minimum age has really been raised to 10, with limited exceptions for 8- to 9-year-olds. Those limited exceptions would have been five distinct juveniles statewide in the last fiscal year. So, no, it's, we're, we're not likely to see six- through nine-year-olds charged with serious offenses. We're not. But children who don't have the capacity to understand what's happening in those rooms don't belong in those rooms. If they're more worried about where the coloring book is or what they're going to draw on during the proceeding, they don't belong in that room. If they believe in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy, they don't belong in that room because children make the decision about what happens to their case not their lawyer and not their mama and not their daddy. They make the decision. They make the decision to talk to the police. They make the decision to testify or not testify. They make the decision about whether to accept responsibility or not. Brain science just doesn't support that. The brain science actually supports raising the age to something more like 12 or 14. Uh, We thought we had 10 as a lock. Given the fact that it's only a very small number of children, that compromise felt good. Overwhelming number of children eight- and nine-year-olds aren't charged with those serious crimes, so we've effectively raised the floor to 10. I hope the lived experience will be similar to what we've experienced with Raise the Age the first time and that we'll see some movement on um, the rest of the eight- and nine-year-olds. And then maybe in the future, maybe not happen in my career, but maybe during the future we can see it raised to 12. You know, there's a recommendation uh, out of a national children's uh, advocacy group for nationwide standard of 12. And we have shaken the distinction of having the lowest prosecuted age in the country. That's we, true. We have. <laughs> we, we, we were the so, lowest age, and then we were the lowest age to treat them as adults, as too. That's not a distinction North Carolina needed or wanted, and I'm glad that we're changing it. So, point of clarity, we were the lowest age of juvenile jurisdiction in the world. Yikes. I did not know that. In the world. I chair a subcommittee for the Juvenile Justice uh, and Juvenile Jurisdiction Advisory Committee that was tasked with the general, by the General Assembly with studying raising the minimum age. So we looked all over the world at what was happening with younger kids. We had the lowest age in the world. When I get in front of 300 eighth graders in a gymnasium, one of the first things I tell them is, I'm here because you're in a state that expects you to grow up a little quicker than anywhere else on the planet. And, and we talk about, you know, adult consequences. So I'm going to have an adult conversation with you before you have the right to remain silent. Well, we need to take a break. But when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening about juvenile justice. And I really want to get into some of the approaches that might now be possible with a considerable amount of funding from the county. We'll also touch on the sometimes contentious issue of school resource officers or SROs. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman, here with District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening. We're talking about juvenile justice, and in this final segment, I want to talk about a recent move by New Hanover County Commissioners to tap into $350 million of hospital sale proceeds to address the issues of community violence and school safety. 
Now, we'll get into how community violence is being defined in a minute. But first, Jay, I want to ask you, are there new possibilities on the table with this deeper well of funding now available? The answer to that is yes. And um, I talked about one of those during the joint meeting because bringing the cure violence model, the cure violence global model to Wilmington is something that can work because we have a significant issue with community violence. And community violence has spilled into our schools. It has spilled recently into the Forsyth County schools. It has spilled recently into the Charlotte Mecklenburg schools and into a neighborhood as part of the retaliation uh, shooting from the, from the football game. Durham has had lots of success with that model. Greensboro has had success with it. Charlotte is in the early stages of it. Forsyth County, ironically, had had their first meeting about working with Cure the week before their tragedy at Mount Tabor High School, a high school that I attended. So, so that's going to be uh, one of the first asks, and I think the county is supportive of that. It's a public health model. Uh, they treat it like a public health problem and respond to it with uh, principles that are born out of epidemiology, uh, which is important. Uh, so I think that's, that's going to be one of the first big asks. And if you look at the size team that's probably necessary for that, it's probably eight to 10 new employees, you know, dependent, dependent on classification, 250 to $350,000 a year. But we got to do something about the violence in our communities because it's been, it's been going on. It didn't just happen a few Fridays ago. It didn't just happen at Longleaf Park. It didn't just happen at break time billiards. It's happening almost every day in our communities, and people are suffering because of it. Some of the other asks, I think, that are going to happen, uh, at least the opinion according to Jay Corpening, that, that are going to be asked because I'm going to bring them up, is providing more support for our homegrown organizations that are working with at-risk children in our communities, like Frankie, like Voyage like the community girls and boys, like Brigade, like those programs. I think that's important. Providing support for the schools to accelerate training for things like youth mental health first aid and development of more trauma-focused responses in addition to the 10 pilot programs. The challenge that our schools have is they try to schedule trainings during limited staff development days that are allocated to them, right? Uh, Because they have no flexibility in their schedule. But an ask that I'm prepared to make is that the county provide either funding for substitutes or subsidies, whatever the, the money is called, so that teachers during the regular school year have the ability or staff members to complete that, for example, eight-hour youth mental health first aid training, so we can accelerate that. We can't wait for now another school year or two for all that to happen, and I think county subsidy to help pay for substitutes for that training to happen is, is something real that can happen now, along with longer-term goals of Things like expanding the trauma-focused pilot projects in our schools and then something like Bull City United out of, out of Durham. Those are things that are on my mind right now that I'm hoping to have a minute or two to talk about in a meeting coming up. Ben, can you say a little bit more about what community violence is? It, I, I know some sure. people probably feel a little euphemistic. Absolutely. Well, first of all, this pandemic has really laid bare for America that there's two countries, two cities that we seem to be occupying. There's one where everything seems to be going pretty well and that you get to quarantine in a beautiful home with a white picket fence and mom and dad are there and um, the kids are doing just fine online. And then there's another part of your community. And I'm not just talking about inner city Wilmington right now. I am talking about the far reaches of Pender County that I represent. And I, and so does Judge Corpening. And 
so frequently we lose, you know, the hillbillyology in all of this, where, you know, these diseases of despair, like the opioid epidemic that killed 91,000 people uh, last year alone, I regard that as community violence. I regard driving while impaired, and a lot of them are not being impaired by alcohol anymore. It's by all the other hard drugs in the middle of the day. We're, we're losing five North Carolinians a day to overdoses. We're losing one a week in this district. That's community violence. Obviously, the euphemism for community violence that a lot of people are now using that term is to talk about gang violence. And here's why it's exploded during the pandemic. You know, kids look for structure. And when they don't have it at home, they find it in each other. And the one protective factor, this one source of resilience for so many kids that have been in challenging circumstances, and the listeners now who say, well, I've got an A score of five and I'm okay, they go back and I bet they would find a loving teacher, a great coach, someone outside of their family who was that person for them, and that's all it takes, Ben. And for the last year and a half, there is a whole group of kids in our community, just like in this country, who have been running around with no adult. And what we're seeing now is, is pandemic violence. That's really what we're talking about. And so the great news for this community is we have a lot of resources because of the sale of the hospital. We have a can-do attitude. The answers are not somewhere else. There are people in this community who have been doing this work for years. There's wonderful organizations that already exist. There's certainly best practices, and Judge Corpening's mentioned some, that we continue to want to borrow from, no question. But we've got everything we need right here. What we need to do is all come around the shared understanding that these are all of our kids that we're talking about. And until we focus on the needs of every one of them, until we understand that public health is inextricably bound up with public safety, it doesn't matter which judge or which DA is talking to you 10 years from now. We're still going to have the same conversation until we solve that. So I don't want to go too far down this road because it could be a whole other conversation. But the argument has been made that in the absence of economic security, in the absence of stable family life, in the absence of the regular routine of school, that gangs provide a legitimate and even positive environment for for young people. Do you, I mean, do you buy that? Is there any merit to that? There is absolutely merit that what attracts people to gangs is a sense of belonging. I've talked to a number of them. You know, I, I believe that it's important to try to understand before trying to be understood. So I have sat down with many gang members through the last several years that I've been the district attorney to try and understand what it is for them. It's about loyalty. It's about honor. It's about having each other's back. That's hard to break, you know, to get them to testify on each other, for instance, when you have that code. So are there things that we could all admire about that structure? Of course. Um, here's where I part company with some people who say we can use it for good. I believe that there are organizational principles within gangs and even whole credos within a gang that have positive attributes. But until you actually renounce the gang, not just violence, but renounce the gang, here's the problem with any business model that would allow you to say, we're going to find the good and praise it within this gang. You are 40 times more likely to be the victim of a homicide in America if you're the member of a gang. What happens is, even if you renounce it, even if you are no longer actively in the violence of a gang, you're still associated with it. And when there is a back and forth retaliation that's going on, and this community has seen that, 
you can get caught up in that and be targeted merely for that status. And so it's a, not only a high crime area that we need to be worrying about, but a high victim area. And some of the people who I have met who I have literally said, I'm here to try to save your life. I'm, I'm not putting this gang injunction on you right now because of some secret plot to ruin your life. I'm trying to keep you alive till your 24th birthday. And I, I, I've talked to people who are now dead, um, who I've said that to, and I don't want to be right about that, Ben. So no, I, I, I reject the idea that you can um, separate what I call the water from the wet, the, the violence from the affiliation. I think you have to do both. And here's the good news. I've worked with enough business leaders in this community and, and starting hometown hires that's put hundreds and hundreds of people to work that I know that there is a welcoming community that is ready to employ a lot of people, not despite their criminal record, but because of their experiences, because adversity builds character and they want them to get a second chance. But you have to renounce the violence and the gang at the same time to do that. Which points out part of why the supports that we were talking about earlier are, are so very, very important because um, during COVID, even some of those supports were limited, right? Yeah. And so we really saw protective factors dropping off, that school factor, those other community supports dropping away because of COVID, which left the kids really to fend for themselves and ramped up risk factors in their lives. Um, and so, you know, in response to the economic, you know, concerns, kids can come out of poverty. They can. And one of the first steps is completing that education. That's why Ben and I have spent so much time partnering to try to keep kids in school. Uh, there is a way out of poverty, and it's through the schoolhouse. And, and, and that's just the first step because then as they stay in the schoolhouse, as they graduate, then, gee, can I think about college for the be the first person in my family to think about whether it's Cape Fear Community College or UNCW or whatever? Can I, can I think about an advanced degree? And then, and then what does my employment opportunity look like after that? It's different yeah. than if I drop out of school. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm host Ben Schockman here with District Attorney Ben David and Chief District Court Judge Jay Corpening. Now, we've got a little time left, and Ben, I know there were another couple issues that you wanted to get to. I hope we have a little space left to talk about what it is that we're doing to divert kids away from courts to keep them in school and treat these as discipline issues and not criminal justice events in the vast majority of the time because, you know, the school-to-prison pipeline that they talk about is the idea that 20-some years ago when we had Columbine and everyone wanted a good guy with a gun, to a hammer everything looks like a nail. And if you're an SRO and you have an offense in front of you that could be criminally charged, it was going to the courthouse, whereas right before that, they was going to the principal's office. And we are trying to turn the clock back and break that pipeline by leaving it in the principal's office. And there's been some really remarkable results as a, out of that partnership. You know, that's something I hear from listeners and readers all the time, which is basically variations on, in my day, that would have been, you know, uh, solved with a fist fight. It would have been, you know, and it would have been left in the principal's office. Uh, I certainly think that had there been SROs in my school, when I was in middle school, I probably would have been arrested at least once or at least once or twice. I mean, we had we had some good scraps, um, and I'm friends with these people now. You know, we, we we grew out of it, but you know, I I bring that up because in retrospect, things could have gone much much more differently uh, if that had been sort of treated as a you know simple affray or, or a criminal incident. So let's take a particular example of 
SROs. The shooting at New Hanover High School, um, the SRO reacted, as I understand, really quickly. He, he applied first aid. Uh, nothing wrong with that. that that's amazing. But it, it didn't prevent the shooting. Um, so do you feel like there's a way to remodel the, SR, the SRO program, uh, replace the SRO program? I mean, what are, what are we actually talking about here? There's some specialized training that needs to happen if you're going to be an SRO. It's one of the most important positions in all of law enforcement. And too frequently, um, historically, that job has been given to the guy who's about to retire and doesn't even really want to be there. You, it's just the reverse. You want someone who so inspires confidence and respect that kids want to reach out to them, and you proactively prevent it when you're the listening post for the thing that's about to happen next. Judge, I'd, I'd turn it over to you now on this as well. Guys with guns aren't going to be able to stop every shooting that happens at a school. New Hanover has 80 exterior doors, I think, student body of about 2,000, which is why it's so important that we take care of the relationships in the building and that law enforcement have positive relationships with the students so that, you know, for example, the 25 or 30 kids on the social media video that were holding their cell phones up filming the fight, you know, one of them might have gone to that trusted SRO or trusted administrator and said, there's a fight going on, you need to break it up. So that's one of the most important roles the SROs can provide. Perimeter defense, response and emergencies, they can, um, but when community violence spills into schools, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, right? Which is why right now I'm so focused on really trying to get the county to look not just what needs to happen in the schoolhouses, but what needs to happen in the community to address the community violence that we have seen spike so high in the last six months. I've never seen anything like it. I've been on the bench 30 years. I've never seen anything like it. And so we've, we've got to find a way to intervene in that. I believe school resource officers play an important role. It tends to make us feel better as parents when, when our kids are at school. But that relationship-building role that they play is one of the keys to those buildings being safer, is building those positive relationships. And that's why that training that Ben was talking about was so important. Uh, the last thing I would say is that, to your point, I don't have children. I'm not sure every parent feels better that there's an SRO in there. Oh, oh right, Ben. I'm sorry. Because there are folks who, who, who have heartfelt belief that we do not need police in schools. I respect that. Been in rooms lots of times with folks who don't believe in school policing. I get that and respect that. I think that there needs to be some recognition that in, our, in the political climate in our state, we're not going to see school resource officers go away. But certainly there, there are folks who, who have a heartfelt belief that, that we don't need police in schools. Thank you for circling back to that. All right. Well, you've both been very generous with your time. So let me just say at this point, um, any closing thoughts? So so the last thought I have is that I get asked by lots of people, well, what can I do? You know, what can I do? You can be an influencer. Um, One of the most important things that Ben and I do is to serve as influencers, not just as a prosecutor, as a judge, but as influencers, because we've built relationships with people in our community that look to us um, for our opinions about a broad range of issues or look to us to develop programs or look to us to solve problems. Um, County government, city government, school board needs to hear from people. Uh, And so if if folks have relationships uh, and have opinions or resources that they're willing to share, then let leadership know about that. Um, get involved with things, some of the community supports that we've talked about earlier. Get involved with those programs, serve on those boards, volunteer in those agencies, work with kids. Um, There are ways for folks to help. I would say that parents make the best police. 
that if you see something, you should say something. A lot of people don't want to get involved because they're afraid of reprisals. We have anonymous ways of reporting, for instance, bullying at the schools, through the schools, and also violence out in the community through a text-to-tip that truly is an anonymous way to not get involved and tell us what's going on out there. Also, as for resources, we're resource-rich here in New Hanover County. That's not the same in Pender County, where Judge Corpening and I also work. We saved this state $500 million over the last eight years in how we rewrote the laws, and we were at the table to do that. It was called Justice Reinvestment. We have not opened, we have closed 11 prisons in that time period. We reduced the prison population by 4,000 beds. That is 10% of the overall prison population by saying we're going to treat mental illness, not incarcerate it. We're going to treat drug addiction, not incarcerate it. We don't want mass incarceration. We have 5% of the Earth's population and 25% of the world's prisoners, and it's a broken business model that doesn't keep the community safe when two out of three that are getting out are back in that jail cell within three years of their current release. So if we've truly saved that amount of money by doing all the things that we've talked about, show me that money. Let's invest it back into the communities, into all the things that the judge and I have been talking about, and specifically into our children, not just for places that are like New Hanover, but places like Pender County, because those kids need it just as badly, in fact, in some cases worse. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both very much, Judge Jacob Burning, District Attorney Ben David. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Again, my thanks to our guests, Ben David and Jay Corbining. And if you're interested, we'll have links on the page and more info about the programs and organizations that they discussed on this episode. Thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. And I also want to thank the WHQR members who make this show possible. And those of you who became new members or donated for the very first time, for this week's Fall Pledge Drive. Shows like The Newsroom are only possible because of your support, and I thank you. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>